Tonight is our last sermon on the book of Proverbs. We've covered many different topics. And tonight, the way of wisdom, contentment. Last time I preached two weeks ago, I preached on anger, and I said I had a very angry week. So this was a bit easier week. I, I, I felt pretty content, so that was good. Before we dig into scripture, let's pray. Lord, you make known to us the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore at your right hand. Lord, what an amazing verse, what an amazing reality that you invite us through Christ into your presence where there is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. But we confess, Lord, that we're often distracted by the pleasures and the pains of life. So we ask tonight, Lord, now that you would give us ears to hear your word, eyes to see your radiant glory, that you would strike our hearts and make them able to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior and as the only way of wisdom. We pray in his precious name. Amen. So contentment. Have you ever said, it just doesn't get any better than this? Maybe you're sitting on your porch or your deck at the end of a wonderful day and you just say, Lord, it just doesn't get any better than this. Maybe you're enjoying a meal with good friends or family. Maybe you are outside somewhere marveling at the beauty and power of God's creation. Our staff went on retreat last week. And when people ask me how it went, I tell them I lived through the two biggest storms of my life. And one of them, we were getting ready to eat at Torch Lake, and we were watching this storm come across the lake. And at first, it was just dark clouds and a very placid lake. And by the end, <coughs> I said to John Anderson, I said, John, surf's up. I mean, it, was, it looked like Lake Michigan. The, the waves were pounding, and if I had let myself, it would have it knocked me over. But there's a sense of God's glory and power in that. Or maybe it's being engaged in some delightful interest or pursuit that you love. When you say it doesn't get any better than this, you're really saying this is the good life. And of course, the good life has been discussed and debated since ancient times. Socrates said the good life is the examined life. Plato added that the good life is a virtuous life. Aristotle taught that the good life is a life of learning and contemplation. Epicurus emphasized that a life of pleasure is essential to the good life. And then if you fast forward about 2,000 years, the humanist psychologist Abraham Maslow said that the good life is the self-actualized life, the life that fulfills all your potential. I think today people would kind of lean towards Epicurus and say the good life is a life of pleasure, as well as Maslow, it's, it's the best life, the best you that you can be. So what do we do when we have all these secular voices weighing in on something as important as what is the good life? I think some Christians say, well, these are all pagans, so they don't know what they're talking about, so just don't pay any attention to it. Others would say, well, yes, they're pagans, but there's such a thing as common grace, and they're experts, they're, they're famous philosophers or psychologists, so we should take them at face value. I think there's a better way. I think when 
a topic is raised and when many voices are heard, we should say, but what does God say about this? What does God think the good life is? And of course, that opens up to us the whole book of Proverbs because the book of Proverbs is about the way of wisdom. And as we're going to see, the way of wisdom is leads us to the good life. Now, we're going to spend time in just a minute looking at some Proverbs on this. But before we do, I want to kind of give a banner above this whole sermon. And it's not from Proverbs. It's from 1 Timothy 6.6, where Paul says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. I think that's Paul's description of the good life. Godliness, a God-centered, God-dependent, God-devoted orientation to life, and contentment, learning to be satisfied with whatever God in his affectionate sovereignty in your life ordains for you. Whatever crowns, crosses, whatever callings or challenges, whatever circumstances, learning to be satisfied with God. So, let's turn to the book of Proverbs, and I'm going to ask you to turn to Proverbs chapter 15. And while you're turning there, I want to give just a little background. We're going to look at four Proverbs that sound very similar. They're what we could call the better Proverbs. All four Proverbs begin with the word better, which means the writer is comparing things. We might say he's discussing comparative values. He's saying this is good, it has some value, but that is better. And all four Proverbs are like that. Now one of the things, one of the areas that he, that he compares is wealth. That's a, a big topic. I think Leo preached on that several weeks ago. Um, and, and, and he's going to compare wealth and other things together. Now you may have noticed as you've read the book of Proverbs that it does not have a single perspective on wealth. Commentator Tremper Longman says Proverbs provides seven snapshots of wealth and poverty. Now I'm just going to go through them real quickly. Number one, God blesses the righteous with wealth sometimes. So it can be a good thing. Number two, foolish behavior often leads to poverty. Three, the wealth of fools will not last. Four, poverty is sometimes the result of injustice and oppression. Five, those with wealth are called to be generous. Six, wealth has limited value. And seven, wisdom is better than, there's the comparison, better than wealth. So the whole Bible, including the book of Proverbs, is shouting, God is the supreme value. He is the sum and the source of everything good, and he is infinitely better than anything he makes and gives you. So if you seek him, you will experience blessing. If you refuse him or ignore him, you will find great trouble. So that's background. That's why the writer is saying, better is this than this. So turn to uh, Proverbs 15, verse 16. Here's the first of our four better Proverbs. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Now we have that word treasure. That can refer to material wealth. 
often does in the Bible. It just refers to anything that is very, very valuable to you. <clears throat> and the Bible doesn't say there's anything inherently wrong with treasure. In fact, Jesus uses treasure as a symbol of what is most valuable and desirable in his, in his uh, uh, proverb, a parable rather, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that, all that he has and buys that field. So Jesus is saying that earthly treasure is meant to point to heavenly treasure. Now before we go on, let me ask you a question. What is your earthly treasure? And again, it's probably something good. It's probably not, there's nothing inherently wrong with it. Maybe your treasure is a new house that you bought for your growing family. Maybe your earthly treasure is a prestigious job in your chosen vocation that you just landed. Maybe your treasure is you just got engaged to the guy or girl of your dreams. Maybe it's a 65 Ford Mustang, or maybe closer to home for me, a 67 Gibson Les Paul guitar. These are all good, but there's a but. But what? The logic of this proverb is that even if you don't have this treasure, things can still be really good. Maybe you're living childless, childless with your spouse in a small apartment. Maybe you're working a minimum wage job. Maybe you're young and single. Maybe you're driving, like me, a 2000 Ford Focus. Maybe you're playing a cheap Gibson copy. But the writer says having that with the fear of the Lord is better than your earthly treasure with trouble. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If your treasure brings trouble with it, the trouble is going to ruin the enjoyment of the treasure. That's one reason. The other is, and here's a little Proverbs logic, the fear of the Lord, which is mentioned in this proverb, is the beginning of wisdom. That's right there in Proverbs 1. And the second part of that logic is that wisdom yields the best treasures. Let me read to you from Proverbs 3, verses 13 through 18. Blessed is the man who finds wisdom, and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better gain than silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her, and those who hold her fast are called blessed. That's the good life. Better gain than silver or gold, more precious than jewels, long life, riches, honor, pleasantness, peace, tree of life, and blessedness. So that's the logic. Better to have a little with the fear of the Lord than treasure with trouble. Now look at the very next verse. Very similar. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Obviously the same idea here. They've just substituted food 
for wealth or treasure. Now the first problem I had when I looked at this proverb is, what on earth is a dinner of herbs? I, I just imagined this plate with a little pile of parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme, and it didn't sound like, like even edible, much less appetizing. The NIV translates it, I think, a little more helpfully and calls it a bowl of vegetables. So what this proverb is saying is it's better to have a simple, ordinary, life-sustaining, not necessarily foodie-delighting meal with people who share a deep and abiding love. Better than what? Well, again, it depends on the translation. The ESV says it's better than a fattened ox. The uh, New Living Translation said it's better than steak. The message says better than a slab of prime rib with hatred. So let's put all that together. It's better to have a simple, ordinary, life-sustaining meal with people who share a deep abiding love with you than a succulent, mouth-watering, special occasion feast food where you really can't stand each other. And that just makes sense. Can you imagine you're having this wonderful uh, feast with people that are just kind of growling at each other and you say, pass the salt, and someone looks at you and says, get it yourself, or tosses the salt shaker at your head. You, you would be experiencing a number of things at the same time. Your mouth may be experiencing pleasure, your stomach may be knotted up with tenseness, and your heart and mind might be experiencing loneliness, anger, frustration, or great sadness. In other words, eating delicious food could be a miserable experience. Eating simple food could be delightful. All right, let's turn one chapter, Proverbs 16, verse 8. Proverbs 16, verse 8. <clears throat> the writer says, Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Very similar to one of our previous Proverbs. They just sort of substituted trouble for injustice. <clears throat> and when you think about it, trouble and injustice often go together. Injustice always implies selfishness. And selfishness usually brings trouble. Could be trouble with other people, trouble with God, that's the worst kind of trouble, even trouble within yourself. But on the other hand, righteousness means favor with God, which brings the joy of fellowship with him and the enjoyment of his blessings. So better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. And then finally, Proverbs 17, verse 1. Proverbs 17, verse 1. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. So here's the last of our four better Proverbs. And it sounds the very same theme we've seen. The good things of this world without God often bring various troubles, hatred, injustice, strife, and cannot be compared to the presence and favor and blessing of the Lord, even if you're in severely reduced circumstances. Now we're going to see this explicitly set out by the Apostle Paul in just a minute as we go to Philippians. But before we transition to what we could call the secret of the good life, let's do one more thought experiment. I want you to think about a time 
when you were deeply contented, satisfied at peace, just oozing contentment. Why were you content? Let me suggest some reasons. Was it A, because circumstances finally lined up exactly the way you wanted them and you believed they would stay that way? Is that why you were content? Or was it B, you finally felt like you learned how to control and manage your life and make it work and you felt like you could continue to do that indefinitely? Or C, because you had friends and family who would support you and affirm you and encourage you no matter what happens. Now, any of those things could have been part of it. But I believe that if you were deeply, deeply, deeply content, there was another dimension to it. There was a spiritual, a God dimension to it. So let's turn now in the New Testament to the book of Philippians and see how Paul picks up on these, this, this proverb uh, theme of contentment and develops it in the light of Jesus Christ. Proverbs 4, verses 11 through 13. While you're looking that up, I'm just going to summarize what we've said so far. Number one, the good life defined by God is godliness with contentment. Two, we looked at four Proverbs that illustrated that by comparing values. Various treasures, earthly treasures, are good, but without God, they often bring trouble, and they leave us unsatisfied. And then finally, God himself is our supreme treasure, and so knowing and enjoying him, even in reduced or difficult circumstances, brings great satisfaction. Here's how Paul puts it in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Familiar verses to us. Paul says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What he's doing here is just fleshing out a little bit godliness with contentment, and he's talking about the secret of that. Now notice several things here. Notice, first of all, that there is a secret of contentment. And that implies that not everybody knows that secret. That means not everybody's content. That's pretty easy to verify, isn't it? Just by looking around any day, any day of the week. There's a lot of discontented people. So there's a secret of contentment, but it's an open secret. Anyone can learn this secret. You don't have to pay money. You don't have to go to a seminar. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to have some secret initiation. Anybody who comes to the Word of God with a humble, teachable heart can learn the secret of godliness with contentment. Now, besides humility and teachableness, I think there's at least one other quality that will be needed, and that is patience. Notice Paul said, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He didn't learn that in a day. He didn't learn that in a weekend seminar. He didn't learn that in a 
in a month, maybe not even in a year. You're going to need patience to learn the secret of contentment. So, you're all sitting there thinking, enough, what is the secret? Tell us. Now, as I, as I prepared this sermon, like any good person preparing a sermon, I read commentaries, I read some articles on contentment, and it wasn't hard to just generate a whole list of things that will lead to contentment. And here they are. Number one, believe in God's character and promises. Number two, remember, you really deserve hell. Number three, don't depend on others, yourself, or circumstances for your contentment. Number four, accept some present discontentment as normal and look beyond this world. Five, once a week, write down everything you're thankful for. Six, like Paul, learn to boast in what you don't have. Seven, identify if all the if-onlys in your life and put them to death. Eight, adapt your desires to your circumstances, not the other way around. Nine, learn to pray to, the, to love the glory of God and the salvation of souls more than anything else. And number 10, don't become a Buddhist because their whole way of dealing with discontentment is to try to extinguish your desires and that's not going to work. So there they are, 10 things. Now what, what's the problem? Well, some of you are saying, like, Pat, I tried to write these down, and I'm, I'm still on number two. I deliberately read through them very quickly, because you know what? Ten is too many. No matter how good they are, it's just too many things to remember. John Piper can get away with it, but most of us can't, okay? And notice, here's what I love. In Philippians 4, 11 through 13, Paul only mentions one thing as the secret. Did you notice it? It's verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the secret of godliness and contentment. We're, we're back to Jesus. And I wonder, I wonder what your reaction is to that. I wonder if your reaction is, Jesus, that's like kindergarten. That's like discipleship 101. Of course, Jesus. Without Jesus, you can't be saved. But there's got to be more to it than that. Or I wonder if you're reaction is I'm so glad that the secret of contentment is Jesus I don't want it to be anything other than Jesus so I'm going to leave you not with ten but with three ways to engage with Jesus because the secret of godliness with contentment is I can do all things through him who strengthens me so here's three things to do Number one, really get to know Jesus. Really get to know him. <clears throat> I know that is also very basic. But brothers and sisters, Jesus did not suffer and die and rise again from the dead so that you and he could be passing acquaintances. That's not why he died. He didn't die to make fans or followers or Facebook friends. He died to make lovers. And you can't do that without pressing in into the gospel, pressing in to, to, to get to know him. Here's how, here's how uh, Hosea says it in Hosea 6.3. 
let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Really get to know him. That's going to take time and effort, but it's the most precious, overflowing joy that there is. We need to adapt the attitude of Jacob when he wrestled with the Lord. And he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Lord Jesus, I will not let you go. I'm going to press into the word. I'm going to press into the gospel. I'm going to press in in prayer until I know that I know that I love you more than life. That's number one. Really get to know him. Number two, abide in him. How's this verse for the secret of contentment? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I didn't make that up. Those are, that's a promise from Jesus. Abide in me. Run to me. Grab a hold of me. Cling to me. Let my words be abiding in you all the time and then ask for what you need. And my Father will do it because he's generous and because he loves you. But it, it implies a sort of desperate clinging, doesn't it? Again, not just a casual running to God, running to Jesus, but, well, think about the story of Jesus walking on the water and Peter gets all excited and he says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. And he says, come. And Peter takes several steps toward the Lord. He's actually walking on the water and then he sees the wind and the waves and he gets frightened. He starts to sink. He cries out desperately, Lord, save me. Jesus grabs a hold of him and he saves him and he says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And he takes him back to the boat. Now later on that day, imagine Jesus and Peter sort of debriefing. And Jesus says, Peter, did you learn anything today? Peter said, oh Lord, I learned that I can't walk on the water without you. Jesus would have said, possibly, Peter, you can't even walk on the land without me. That's how desperately we need him. Brothers and sisters, you can't really get out of bed. You can't brush your teeth. You can't change a diaper. You can't go to work without Jesus. He said, without me, without me, you can do nothing. So again, we're talking about a, a, an earnest running to him, clinging to him in a life of continual, desperate dependence. Number three, and this will happen if you do numbers one and two, if you press on to really know him and abide in him, be fully satisfied in Christ. You know the verse, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Contentment. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But again, notice the word fully. Become fully satisfied because if you're not fully satisfied in him, there's always going to be some elusive something or elusive someone that you're going to feel like you need and you're not going to be content. So press on 
to know him intimately. Abide in him moment by moment and be fully satisfied in him. That is the secret to godliness with contentment. I'd like to close with a quote from Charles Bridges, a 19th century Anglican pastor and church leader that summarizes Jesus as the way to godliness with contentment. He said, would we then enjoy our temporal mercies? So again, notice, temporal mercies, temporal blessings are not bad. They're gifts of God. Would we really enjoy them, be content with them? Welcome the Savior to them. Cherish his spirit. Eye his glory in their enjoyment. The scanty fare, bowl of vegetables, or more abundant store will be alike blessed with the token of his presence and the seal of his everlasting love. Let's pray. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Lord, we want to be people like David who said, Lord, your love is better than life. We want to be like Asaph who said, Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing I desire besides you. We want to be like Paul who says, For the sake of Christ, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Lord, thank you that it's an open secret. Any one of us can learn to know Jesus, and to know him is to love him. We can learn more and more each day to abide in him. When we forget about him, to just run back to him, to ask <clears throat> expectantly and receive and give thanks. And Lord, your desire is Again, that we be lovers of Jesus, lovers of you, Father, through Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray this week in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our families and extended families and in our workplaces, we would be people who are characterized by godliness with contentment because we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.